Welcome to the False Nine podcast. I'm Luke Massey, and today we'll be talking to Paul John Dykes, who is the author of a new biography on Neely Mochen titled Celtic Smiler. Hi, Paul. Uh, could you just introduce us to yourself and um, your work as a writer? Absolutely. Um, my work as a writer really started a couple of years back in print anyway, through the publication of the Quality Street Gang, which um, I did through Celtic. And uh, through the launch night of the Quality Street Gang, I met quite a lot of other kind of Celtic historians and writers, but also met a chap called John Sludden. And uh, John introduced me to young Neely Mocken. John, unbeknown to me at the time, was the famous Neely Mocken's um, nephew, and so he introduced me to his cousin, also Neil, and that took me on to my second book, which was the Neely Mocking biography. So that that really has been up to date, and um, it's all been Celtic related, and I've thoroughly enjoyed that look because that's my big passion is Celtic Football Club. Yeah, I'm a big fan of um, obviously of your first book, The Quality Street Gang. But what are the differences between oh, that book was a book about a period of time and a group of players? Did you feel um, added pressure or added responsibility by doing a biography on such a, a big figure through the history of Celtic? I think definitely. Um, the Quality Street Gang for me was, I was finding my way, I think, in the, the whole process of putting a, a book together. I had written a lot of kind of smaller articles and features and um, I didn't quite appreciate what was uh, involved in putting a book together. So the Quality Street Gang was my first attempt at that and I believe that the story that was told there um, was was told for the first time in a, a great amount of depth in my book. When um, I started speaking to young Neely about his father's story, I must admit, you know, that, that was a, a huge undertaking because of who Neely Mocken is and because that story had to be done in such a way um, because it will never, ever get done again and, and Neely's such a legendary figure. So I felt at the time a fair bit of pressure and throughout uh, throughout the process of writing the book um, quite a bit of pressure because not only am I pleasing myself and the Celtic fans but I had to be very respectful to the family as well um, and to ensure that the, the character that I was putting across in the story was true to life I mean Neely obviously had a persona around Celtic Park um, but a lot of his family uh, told a, a story about a man who was very respectful not only of his family but also, you know, of his faith. So that was a, a big undertaking. And I felt that the sec- the writing of the second book was more difficult, but far more satisfying as well. And in the book, obviously, there's a lot of ex-players featured, not just from Celtic, um, from other teams as well. Can you talk us through, you know, some of the interviews? Obviously, there's too many to go into too much detail. But um, those uh, players and um, friends of Neely, and which ones really stuck out in your head? I mean, Neely, the, the sheer the sheer time frame that he was around Celtic Park allowed me to speak to people from five different decades, which was fantastic for me. So if I went back to the fifties, um, unfortunately and, and very sadly, most of the teammates of the nineteen fifty seven uh, team are, are now gone. In fact, all of them are gone. So some of the younger boys around that time, Mike Jackson and John Fallon uh, particularly, are two great Celts and um, they're fantastic uh, men to speak to as well. Luke, as, as you know, with regards to John, 
Big John Fallon tells a great story because he's a, he's such a passionate Celtic fan. And then moving into the 60s, um, having the opportunity to speak to people like uh, Bertie Old, for example, uh, Jim Craig and Billy McNeil, Bobby Lennox and Stevie Chalmers. I mean, the, every one of the guys is an absolute icon. But they looked up to Neely because Neely was an experienced man who passed on his... Um, anecdotes and passed on his advice to these young guys who became absolute legends and I think my favourite of the 60s era would need to be Bertie because Bertie was a friend of Neely's as well as a teammate and he spoke so passionately about Neely mocking the man and how he influenced Bertie in his younger days Um, and then again going into the 1970s we've got Kenny Dalglish um, and, and players of that ilk Davy Hay the quality street kids and then into the 1980s um, players that I was brought up with guys like Peter Grant Charlie Nicholas David Proven Frank McAvenny. Um so every single one of those men are legends to me but I think that one of the highlights for me was Bertie Old because Bertie was so emotional when he was talking about Neely that was his friend you know um, and he describes Neely as a huge factor and his entire football career and what he achieved in the game. Um, so that that was a, a real eye-opener for me. I knew that Bertie and Neely were close, uh, but hopefully the reader will realise when he reads uh, this book just how close they were. You, you brought up um, there briefly about Neely as a player and how he was um, an idol of John Fallon's. Mm-hmm. Can you go into a bit more detail about his playing those? Because one thing I was coming from an outsider when we were doing the documentary was that how much of an iconic cult figure he was with, you know, the songs and the famous goal in the Coronation Cup. And can you just talk, tell us about his arrival at Celtic and how unusual it was with the amount of games he played uh, before he got to Celtic Park? It's really it's an incredible story. Um, it's one of these things, because it happened in the 50s, I, I was aware of nearly mocking the player and some of the success he had had, uh, Luke. But when, when I started really researching it, it was an absolute fairy tale. Um, you know, Neely Mocken had always wanted to play for Celtic. He was a, a big Celtic man and a, a Celtic family he was brought up that way. Um, but obviously he had to go down south from Morton to Middlesbrough before he was able to come back um, to Celtic Park and, and live his dream. The incredible thing about his arrival at Celtic Park was he played the very next day in a cup final at Hamden. Um, in the Charity Cup final against Queen's Park and he scored uh, two goals so his arrival was instant um, and then Celtic went right into the Coronation Cup tournament one-off tournament for the Coronation of the Queen all these games were played at Ibrox at Ham- and at Hamden but Celtic's games were all played at Hamden Park and nearly just ran riot you know Celtic were playing the, the crop of English clubs like Arsenal and Manchester United he scored against Man U and then in the final Celtic came up against Hibs and at that time Hibs were um, the premier club in, in Scotland I mean Rangers were winning titles but Hibs were winning titles as well and had the fantastic famous five front lines so the chances were that they were going to win this particular trophy but of course there's that famous goal in the Coronation Cup final and it was described by John Fallon in great detail because John was at the game as a fan so Neely Mocking came into the Celtic um, Celtic side and he was accepted by the, the fans instantly uh, but he had to wait a wee while before he was able to play at Celtic Park in the hoops 
So it was an incredible, it was an incredible introduction to Celtic, certainly. And I don't think any player, if you look through the history, has had such an instant impact. Look, that, that's the big thing for me. You know, who else has gone in, won two cups before he's even played a game at home? So uh, that was that was fantastic. And I learned so much about nearly the player um, when I was doing the research. And hopefully Celtic fans in my era and Celtic fans who have come after me will learn a lot because, you know, we think he nearly as the trainer and as the kit man, but as a player, he was an absolute icon as well. Yeah, because obviously after that season with the Coronation Cup, his second season was uh, a part of the double winning team and was top goal scorer. Absolutely, again, uh, yeah. Not to mention, yeah, and the 7-1 game as well, <laughs> which obviously was a fair few years later. After that period, he, he obviously went to um, Dundee United and um, what was the other club he went to after Wraith Dundee? Rovers. Wraith Rovers in Kirkcaldy. That was, that was just, yeah, that was just for a season. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and then Sean um, Fallon brings him back and eventually becomes part of this famous uh, boot room with Steen as manager, Fallon as assistant. Could you just go into a bit of detail about his role in that famous boot room who would go on to uh, manage the Lisbon Lions Absolutely. Team? I think, again, um, it all goes back to the 50s. You know, Sean Fallon, as I've mentioned, uh, and Jock Steen. And, uh, you know, for a short spell as well, Willie Fernie was involved in that. And these were the 50s icons from the double winning side of 54 that uh, you quite rightly said nearly was the top scorer. A few years later in 57 was a famous 7-1 game, Hamden in the Sun, uh, by which time Jock had uh, retired, unfortunately, through injury. But they had a good, they had an incredible bond, really, as uh, friends and as football men. So Sean Fallon uh, brought nearly back in 64. And uh, that was really the beginnings. That, that was the, the earliest uh, part of the Celtics transition from this underachieving side to the European champions because obviously once Jock came in he was the final part of that jigsaw um, Sean Fallon was the assistant manager but what I found again is that these guys had multi roles I mean Sean was a scout Sean was a talent spotter and he would go to players doors and, and convince their parents that you know their laddie was to sign for Celtic so he done a lot as well as being the assistant to Jock Steen and the same could be same for Neely Mocking. Neely was the assistant trainer um, originally. Jockstein made him the full-time trainer. And uh, he also uh, did the kit, even as far back as then. His assistant really was Bob Rooney, who did the uh, physiotherapy side of things. And uh, Neely also did the ground staff. So he looked after anybody who was on the ground staff. And at that time, it was people like John Gorman and George Conley, uh, you know, the quality street kids. So that, that was Neely's role. But he his main role was to get Celtic super fit and Jockstein spoke about it in the Celtic view when he made Neely Mocking the, the trainer he wanted them to be the fittest team in Scotland so that they could compete over and above Scottish football you know they were looking at European and world football um, as far back as 1965 and as we know it came to fruition within a couple of years and just to go, I mean, quite past then, why do you think it was that um, Neely never became a manager himself in his own right? It's a great question. Ah, it's a, a fantastic question because when you think of the um, the respect that the Lions had from the Quality Street kids, everybody else after that, um, you know, they had such a high respect that you think they, they would have been motivated. The players certainly would have been motivated for Neely. But I think the biggest thing, speaking through the family mainly, is that, that Neely was never interested in being the number one. 
he was quite happy uh, to work alongside someone like Jockstein and later Billy McNeil, um, who had the, the the number one title, who had all that pressure that went with it, dealing with the media, um, dealing with disputes, dealing with that side of thing. Neely was far more a buffer between the player and the manager. The players would go to Neely if they had a problem rather than going to Jockstein. And um, I think Neely was quite comfortable uh, being that type of man within Celtic Park who the players could trust. You know, he wouldn't fall out with anybody. Um, and I, I don't think Neely had any aspirations to be uh, the gaffer, if you like. He was quite happy to have uh, the top man beside him and he would do his job and do it well. Um, but it was really through the family that I got that that impression, you know, uh, more so the family than any ex-players. And as a book as a whole, as a writer, looking back now, it's it's all finished and it's about to be published. What what were the challenges, your main challenges while writing the book? The biggest challenge for me, I mean, I, I think also with the first book, writing the entire thing retrospectively um, was, was massive because that entails uh, a long, long period of time up at the library and um, getting all the research uh, done. But what I, I wanted to do was to paint a picture of a person I'd never met before. And that, again, was a very difficult challenge for me. I got loads and loads from the ex-players, uh, but to, to really get a measure of the man, you've got to speak to the family. And I think I got that through young Neely uh, and also John, uh, Neely's son, his brother Dennis, and his nephew, James Butler, who were all fantastic, fantastic um, sources of information for me and inspiration as well. So, you know, that was the, the big difficulty. I wanted to ensure that if someone who knew Neely read this book, they would laugh and cry. And in order to do that, I really had to get under the, the layers of just the football, you know, and really get to know the person. And the strangest thing about it, Luke, was by the end of the book, I'd spent so much time on it, uh, you know, when I finished it, and I spoke to Stephen Sullivan about this, because he had a similar experience with Sean Fallon's book, I actually missed Neely because I wasn't studying him on a daily and nightly basis. I, f I felt like I got to know the guy as a character. Um, and once that book's finished and it gets sent away, um, you feel a wee bit detached from the book. But obviously, Neely has made a big impression on me. Um, and I've never met a guy. Uh, more's the pity. I, I would have loved to have met Neely Morgan. Yeah, it comes across in while reading the book is that the first half of the book is comes across a lot more as a story, as, almost as a novel, mm -hmm. um, and, and it's very interview heavy. The second part, and both are very good, but the first part does seem to have um, it does seem to feel like it's the writer is falling in love with the subject that he's writing about. Oh, um, it's very descriptive, you know. It's uh, um, it, it, the first, like I've told you before, the first part <laughs> I just think was it, it was magical, um, and. For me, like I said, the first part was brilliant, especially when he signs and that period of the Coronation Cup and the interviews with John Fallon and the the Coronation Cup in, in general. I think Pat Stanton, he, he talks brilliantly about it, where, you know, hearing the stories and saying it's a goal like Superman would score. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favourite part of, of the book or what part did you enjoy writing the most? I think it, it was, um, again, going back to having written my book with the Quality Street Gang, um, I approached this completely differently and I had a, a real... Um, fixed plan, whereas the quality sheet gang, um, I think the term would be organic, it just grew as, as I went along with it and it changed a hell of a lot as I went through the process. With the Neely book, um, I, I certainly approached it from um, two different halves, if you like, and I knew that the first half was going to be a wee bit more 
uh, of a fairy tale and, and a story. And the second half uh, would really rely on interviews and anecdotes, um, more because when Neely was a kit man, um, obviously, you know, you, you want to hear the stories and, and the, the funny wind-ups, etc. But when he was a player, I just wanted to get a measure of the character and the figure that he was. And I almost did it from the view that the first half of the book is almost like in black and white and the second half's in technicolour. And so when the two of them come together, you can actually see the difference in eras from the start to the finish of the book. Um, my, my most enjoyable part is always speaking to the ex-players without a, a shadow of a doubt. Um, some of the funny stories and the anecdotes were just absolutely hilarious. And when I read through it myself, look, I still had a wee giggle at the end. And I thought, well, if I'm still laughing at it, having read it, you know, dozens of times, hopefully the Celtic fans will feel the same way. But one of the, the most poignant moments would probably be um, meeting up with, with Father Brian Gibbons, who came into the, the Mocking family quite late um, and obviously uh, he ran the service for Neely's funeral and it was really, for me, pivotal to have him uh, involved in the book and also in the documentary because he gave a completely different um, view on the, the end of the story. Yes, it's very, very sad, but I, th I feel that it's quite uplifting as well, the way that Brian put it across. And uh, when, I, when I read back, having finished the book, I, th I thought that the final chapter relied heavily on Brian and the way that he came across. So that, that was my most enjoyable part of it, Look, well, Yeah, something just hit me there when you were talking about some of the, the most humorous stories that people would tell, was that there seems to be this wave through the book of, at the beginning, it's this almost kind of cult legendary figure. And then as a trainer with the Lisbon Lions, he's this man who's really respected and very influential in the success that the team had. Like uh, Archie McPherson said, you know, you can't separate him from the triumphs. Mm -hmm. And then in the third section where he, you interviewed people um, like Frank McAvenny and Andy Walker and Brian McClare, there seems to be just a lot of affection for the man, even more than respect. Just a, They seem to really love him um, and how he kind of helped the youngsters come through in the boot room. No, it's, you're absolutely right. You've hit the nail on the head. I think by the time he had given up the kind of training duties and he was more of a kit man and a, and a ground staff mentor, um, the affection was definitely there. And it comes across in interviews. One of the, the most touching interviews, I think, was probably uh, Peter Grant. Now, Peter Grant, for me, uh, he was a guy I, I was brought up on. Uh, he was always a, a fixture in the Celtic side when I went for the first for the first time. Um, and he split opinion at that time. But one thing nobody could dispute about Peter Grant was his um, dedication to Celtic Football Club. I mean, every Celtic fan you speak to knows that that man bled Celtic. And he says that was down to Neely. Neely brought him up. Neely was like, at that point, he was like the the, the favourite uncle of Celtic Park. All the young guys loved him. They absolutely adored him, Charlie Nicholas. And and they, they speak about him in such glowing terms. And even the, the players that Celtic brought in, some of the some of whom you've mentioned, Frank McAvenny, Andy Walker and, and Brian McClear, they I mean, McClear and Walker were extremely young when they came into Celtic and nearly took them under his wing and he, he taught them the Celtic ways of going about your business and how to represent that club properly. Peter Grant, honestly, the way he spoke about Neely was incredible. He was emphatic in his praise. And he basically says everything that he um, looks back on fondly at Celtic Park involves Neely Mocking. And the guy was there, I think he played four or 500 games for Celtic. So that says something. Uh, you're absolutely right. His role changed um, incredibly. And I'm just 
I'm just glad and delighted that Neely saw the takeover of Fergus McCann because he would have been hurting for the last few years um, of uh, his Celtic life because the club was going nowhere um, and it was in, it was really in a, in a barren time for Celtic. So I'm glad that he was able to enjoy it for a very short period of time, the, the turnover, uh, the, the, the turnaround of Fergus McCann coming in and saving the club. And um, just finally, Paul, what are you up to next as a writer? What you, what's your plans now? Well, I think um, Celtic obviously is what has put my own name um, on the on the map in terms of football writing, and that that's something that I'm passionate about. And to be honest with you, I could write about Celtic and talk about Celtic um, until the day I die. Uh, so I'm looking at other stories that may interest Celtic fans. Um, I'm also aware of the fact that there's a lot of Celtic books come out um, on an annual basis so I'm going to be very careful as to how to approach that Um, one player who has shown an interest in writing his story is Andy Lynch so I'll be speaking to Andy over the coming months to see if if we can uh, develop that idea Uh, but at the same time obviously there's a few other uh, aspects in my interest and I love music as well so I've been speaking to a musician called Edgar Summertime about his story he's a Liverpudlian musician um, I'll definitely continue with my writing and my first love's always been Celtic so hopefully um, my subject matter will, will never veer too far away from that And uh, thanks for the uh, interview Paul and congratulations on a great book Thank you very much Luke uh, I look forward to seeing the documentary <laughs> We'll talk about that tomorrow <laughs> Celtic Smiler is available from Amazon and all good bookshops from December 1st For more information please visit www.celticsmiler.com smilerdoc.com. Thanks for listening.